Father, thank you for the privilege of corporate worship, the gift of corporate worship purchased by the Son of God who came to bring reconciliation, not just vertically, but horizontally. We thank you for this gift, but we also recognize it as a responsibility. Give us grace to steward this moment well. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen. One of the best-selling and most popular and famous books of all time was written by, incidentally, a man serving his third term in prison. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. They told him if you would just stop, we would release you to your family. He said, I can't stop. But the man's name was John Bunyan. And the name of the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. <clears throat> it's an allegory of a man named Christian. Christian the Pilgrim. Who's making his way to the city of God. The celestial city. And at one point in his pilgrimage, Christian and his friend, Hopeful, it says, stepped aside from the true way onto an easier path. They believed that that easier path would take them to the same destination. So why not just take the easier path? They soon learned that that was a foolish decision. And so they began to make their way back to the path. And on the way back to the path, one night they slept on the grounds of a castle. They learned that the name of that castle was Doubting Castle. And it was owned by Giant Despair. When the giant found them, he threw them into his dark dungeon where they would suffer from Wednesday all the way until Sunday when they would escape. On Thursday, giant despair beat them down good. He brutalized them. He beat them. He tortured them. On Friday, giant despair commanded them to kill themselves, commit suicide. On Saturday, angry that they had not obeyed him, he showed them the skeletons of all the people he had murdered through the years and that this was coming to them. And then he beat them again. We'll come back to that story. But for now, suffice to say, giant despair is a metaphor for what we might call in... Contemporary terms, depression slash anxiety. Interestingly for Christian, his despair was brought on by diverting from the way. But not all despair is a result of diverting from the way. So we'll see sometimes it has nothing to do with external things. 
Sometimes it's brought, out, uh, brought along by providential changes, such as bereavement, job loss, financial problems, health issues, difficult relationships. And sometimes depression, anxiety happens after a great spiritual victory. David has most recently won a series of victories over Saul. But as we open up in chapter 27, he's overwhelmed by despair. Comes out of nowhere. That's why I want to camp here today. I'm not Dr. Phil. And this is not a Dr. Phil message. But I recognized as I was studying this, there's some things that I think we need to hear because a lot of my counseling has to do with people who are struggling with depression and anxiety. And I felt like that there's so much to say here that it would not allow me to continue and finish the text in a, in a proper time. So what we see here, right at the beginning, is the crisis. The crisis for David is despair. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I, than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and the six hundred men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Now in the Bible's long account of David's life and his reign, there are several, several incidences that reveal David's fallenness. We've already seen some of those. We'll see more. We have seen that he is prone to deception and lies. He has most recently married two wives. He's a polygamist. We've seen a short temper, hot temper, when he was disrespected. We will see that he has the very real capacity and does commit adultery and even murder. But here in chapter 27, we see another expression of David's weakness, his fallenness, and that is his capacity for despair, for depressive anxiety. And, and this capacity is not unique to David in the Bible. If you do a study of the scriptures on this, you will see that there are many characters in the Bible who struggle with depression at some point. Certainly the, the word is not used, depression, but the symptoms of depressive anxiety are clearly there. For instance, the Moses. You see this a few times with Moses. Just one example, Numbers 11, verse 14. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. 
if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. That's Moses pleading with God. Jeremiah, we'll get to this in chapter 20 of his book on Sunday night. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Verse 18, why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? That's one of the great prophets. Hannah, we know how godly Hannah was, but she was constantly provoked by Penina. She says in 1 Samuel 1, says, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And on and on you can go. There's Job. We'll come to Job. Elijah. We'll come to Elijah. Several psalmists. For instance, Psalm 69, verse 2. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. This is one who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's clearly struggling with depression. Human emotions are volatile. I don't know if you've noticed that. One minute, you feel jubilant. The next minute, you, you feel overwhelmed. Sometimes even to the point of anxiety and depression. The sadness... And anxiety are not the only symptoms of depression. Depression can also lead to palatable symptoms. For instance, as you study the scriptures, it can disturb your sleep. Job, listen to Job chapter 7 verse 4. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? Have you ever been there? You're in, you're in bed and the, the the time just seems to stop. You can't sleep. But the night is long. And I am full of tossing till the dawn. Time has stood still. He's just ready for the sun to rise so he can get out of bed. Can't sleep. It can lead to fatigue. Psalm 69.3, I am weary. With my crying out, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Can lead to loss of appetite. Psalm 102, verse 4. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. As we read this morning, the psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night. It can also produce bodily pain. Psalm 38. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my, my sin. And so that's the crisis with David. But what's the cause? It's a more difficult question to answer. Now, depression is often divided into two categories. I think this is important for us to know. First of all, there are 
reactive reasons for depression, and secondly, endogenous reasons for depression. Reactive depression can be traced back to some obvious trigger. There was something that triggered the depression. It might be stress, long-term extended stress. It may be harmful thought patterns, unbiblical thought patterns. It may be sin. Endogenous depression is thought to be organic and biological in nature and seems to have no obvious triggers. We live in a fallen world and we are fallen. And sometimes the the human constitution can just be prone to depression without any obvious reason for it. In Psalm 69, it does not even appear the psalmist is, is in sin. The psalmist is just in a bad way and has fallen to deep mire. Having said that, it's clear from our text in 1 Samuel 27 that David's despair is not endogenous, it's reactive. It's been triggered by something. Triggered by stress. Imagine the most powerful man on the planet chasing you to kill you, and now it's been years. You no longer sleep in your comfortable bed at home. You sleep in caves. And you're responsible for 600 men and their families to provide for them resources, food, and so forth. The the logistics nightmare alone would have been stressful. So there's the stress. But then what we're going to see here in this passage are unbiblical thought patterns that have exasperated David's problem. So we could say, as we are counseling David, Saul is the reason for his despair. But we could also say it goes deeper than Saul. And so although depression is not always due to sin, that's important for us to remember. In certain movements, the counselor will say to the, the person suffering that your depression is always due to your sin That's not the case. But it's clearly the issue with David here. In this particular case, it was a response to Saul's unrelenting, murderous threats on David's life. But in that, David is going to betray some really unhelpful, harmful thought patterns that I think many of us can identify with. In fact, the first thought pattern that I believe that we can see from David here that is profoundly unbiblical is something that perhaps you have struggled with before. Extremist conclusions. Extremist conclusions. That is the tendency to evaluate personal qualities 
are circumstances in extreme black and white categories. There's no gray. With David, even though God had delivered him from Saul and given him glorious promises, and he had delivered Saul, he had delivered him from Saul numerous times, David concludes here that because Saul is still after him, that he's going to perish. It's an extremist conclusion. Another biblical example is Job. Even though most of his life was extraordinarily blessed by God, when Job went through that very painful season of difficulty and, and tragedy, he decided, being the extremist he was in this particular case, he must be an enemy of God. Job 13, 24. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? That's Job's question to God. But it's an extremist conclusion. There's also another set of unbiblical thought patterns that we, we see in David, but perhaps also in you and me. Untrue generalizations. This occurs when, after experiencing a, an unpleasant event or a set of events, we assume that the same thing is going to continue to happen to us from here on. With David, he had had a season of painful events. Saul was unrelenting. He loved Saul. Saul had brought him into his home or into his palace and put him in his court. And all of a sudden, Saul just turns on David when he hears the, the girl singing. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The Ziphites had betrayed him two times. Man, to be betrayed once by anyone is painful. These Ziphites had betrayed him Twice, And then you've got the people of Keilah who were going to surrender him to Saul's hands. He had been highly disrespected by Nabal. And, and then you've got the issues with having to care for 600 men and their families. And David generalized at this point that it's going to continue. That this is his life. Nothing's going to change. Saul is going to kill him. Another biblical example of untrue generalizations is that of Jacob. Jacob was in a dark place. We know that his son Joseph had been sold into slavery. He thought he was dead. And in Genesis 42, 36, he says to his sons, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. He believed because it had happened in his eyes to Joseph and had happened to Simeon, it was going to happen to Benjamin. Just a false generalization on Jacob's part. There's also something we are prone to, and certainly we see here with David, is faulty filters. 
faulty filters. Now, what do I mean by that? When depression sets in, the tendency is to pick out the negative in every situation and isolate it at the exclusion of everything else. Even though David had seen remarkable providences from God, God had delivered David, for instance. There was a time Saul was gaining on David, and then the Philistines raid the land, and it diverts Saul's attention at the moment he was about to pounce on David. He had seen that occasions like that. The time that Saul came into the cave at En Gedi. Of all of those caves there, he comes into the one where David and his men are. Essentially, he was delivered into the hand of, of David. And then we saw last time that he and Abishai go into Saul's camp. And it says, the Lord caused a deep sleep on Saul and every single one of his men. He had seen remarkable providences. He had even seen that miracle as God provided for him in the wilderness. And yet, here he is. He says, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. So what David has done here is he's excluded all the good with his faulty filter. Another biblical example of a faulty filter, despite having seen God move at Mount Carmel, where the fire of God fell on the altar, the power of God, Elijah's filter excluded all of that. And he focuses and he centers upon the fact that Ahab and Jezebel were opposed to him. It leads him to the point of utter despair. Faulty filters. Filtering out. Excluding all the good and centering on the negative. Another thought pattern we see here in David and perhaps you see in yourself is false prophesying. False prophesying. This happens when we feel so strongly that these things will turn out badly that our feelings-based prophecy seem to become an already established reality. We expect misfortune and the expectation of that generates hopelessness. Again, David says, Now I shall perish. It has become a reality for David. But it's actually a false prophecy. Another biblical example. Expecting the opposition that Jesus would have in Bethany. Doubting Thomas. Falsely prophesied not only his own death, he prophesied Jesus' death there at Bethany and the disciples. John 11, verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. And then fifth, 
Another thought pattern we see with David and that perhaps you see in yourself, emotions-based reasoning. People suffering from depression, anxiety, despair, tend to interpret their emotions as the truth, as the facts of things. Now keep in mind, you hear today about my truth and your truth. Let me just say, truth is not self-derived. Truth is revealed. And so he's deriving his own truth. This is postmodern in even the pre-modern age. Again, it says, David said in his heart. He said in his heart. He's allowing his heart and his fallen emotions to determine the reality of things. Another biblical example with David. At another one of his low points, David felt and he concluded that he was cut off from God. You ever felt that way? Psalm 31, 22. I had said, he's reflecting back on that time, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. So these are five harmful thought patterns that, that I see with David here. These are not the only harmful and unbiblical thought patterns that we, are, we have the capacity to come up with. But I think we see these with David and perhaps you have seen in your own life. And as we're going to see next week, when these thought patterns are left unchecked, unaddressed, they can lead to potentially disastrous choices. In this particular case, you see David arose, went over, he and the 600 men, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. If you remember, Gath is one of the five cities of the Philistines. It's where Goliath is from. He has left the land because of these sub-biblical, unbiblical thought patterns in response to his stresses and he leaves the land and he goes and befriends the enemies of God and the king of those enemies. That brings us to the cure. Now, although the cure for this particular crisis is not seen in our text, in fact, we're not going to see it in chapter 27. You could say... Chapter 27 is a godless chapter. And I mean that intentionally. You, so, you see no mention of God in this, in this particular chapter. There's no worship. David doesn't pray even one time in this chapter. No psalms are written from this episode. Earlier episodes, we'd seen plenty of psalms written. There's no psalms written here. And so there, the cure is not clearly communicated in this chapter. Just the crisis and the reason for that crisis. But the cure can be deduced 
by considering how David ultimately ended up in Doubting Castle. Owned by giant despair. And the text tells us, he simply turned inward. Then David said in his heart, now I will perish. He should have known better. He had been anointed by Samuel as king in chapter 16. And back in chapter 24, if you just want to flip a couple of pages, even Saul, even Saul in chapter 24 verse 20 tells him, I know you shall surely be king. The kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Chapter 25, Abigail, in verse 28. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. That's the first time we see sure house of David. That will be picked up again in the covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Isn't that a beautiful promise? And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from his, as from the hollow of a sling. Just like you killed Goliath with a sling, God will kill your enemies because his hand is on you. He has anointed you to be king. And then even last week, chapter 26, Saul again Verse 25, blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. And we didn't even see the great encouragement and promises that his friend Jonathan had given him. But David is ignoring those promises right now. Or either he has forgotten them. And that is a central reason for his despair. It's a central reason for a believer's pessimism. Because the Lord never leads his people into pessimistic thoughts. Ever. They come strictly from promise amnesia. Promise amnesia. Consequently, all of these anti-kingdom thoughts... And they're anti-kingdom because David is going to be the future king. He will sit enthroned. All of these anti-kingdom thoughts he's having, surely I will perish. There's nothing better for me than I should escape. They've hijacked his life. They've absolutely hijacked his life in chapter 27. And now he is preaching these anti-kingdom thoughts, it says, to his heart. David said, in his heart. And this is where texts like Psalm 42 are helpful. We read Psalm 42 this morning at the beginning of worship. The psalmist has clearly been to Doubting Castle, owned by giant despair. Psalm 42, verse 3. My tears have been my food, day and night. He can't eat, so he's filling up on tears. Despair. 
while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? But in the midst of that psalm, the psalmist does something that all of us need to learn. We need to sit at the feet of the psalmist and take notes. He begins in the midst of his despair to speak and preach to his soul. Instead of listening to his heart, he begins to preach to it. Instead of listening to himself, he begins to preach to himself. Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? Who's he preaching to? He's preaching to his soul. He's preaching to himself. Why are you cast down? And why are you in turmoil within me? Let me just say this. The most influential person in your life is you. You listen to yourself more than you listen to anyone. David earlier had been listening to himself preach, promise, forgetting, sub-biblical, emotional thoughts. And here, the psalmist is teaching us how to address that. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's preaching to his soul. Why are you in turmoil within me? Your turmoil, soul, is causing me devastation. It's hijacking my life. That's what the psalmist is saying. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Back to Christian. I left you hanging, didn't I? Back to Christian in the Doubting Castle. At midnight on Saturday night, he and his companion, hopeful, finally decide to pray. It took them from Wednesday to Saturday night. They'd had enough of giant despair. Why does it take us so long? They'd had enough of giant despair, and so at midnight on Saturday night, they began to pray, and they prayed all night. And then we read of their glorious escape. Here's what Bunyan writes. Now a little before it was day, good Christian broke out in this passionate, passionate speech. Keep in mind, where is Bunyan writing this? In a, in a dungeon. So it's very clear that Bunyan has struggled with this giant despair himself. He's teaching us how to deal with those kinds of giants. So Christian broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool am I! Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk in liberty. I have a key. He's saying I have a key to this dungeon. That key is called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. 
This key is a master key. It opens every lock in this castle. And using the key, Christian and hopeful escaped. What was the key? He said the promises. The promises of God. It's the key. There was no need for Christian and hopeful to spend even one hour in Doubting Castle, in the dungeon. Sadly, he had forgotten all the time from Wednesday to Saturday night that he had that key in his possession the entire time. And so, when we wake up in Doubting Castle, owned by giant despair, what do we do? What do we do? We say, why are you cast down, soul? Hope in God. Just consider, I was thinking this morning, consider, and we don't have time to look at all of these, but consider the promises that God had already revealed to David up to this point. The promises he pins under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the wilderness in response to all the various deliverances he had experienced at the hands of his God. For instance, in Psalm 34, this was written on the occasion after he changed his behavior and acted like a maniac before the king of Gath. He wrote in response, those, verse 5, who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. He had forgotten that. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David had forgotten that. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. David had forgotten that. And that's why he's not crying in 1 Samuel 27 to God. He's not praying. There's no prayer. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. He had forgotten that. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. David had forgotten that promise. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Verse 19, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David had forgotten that. Or Psalm 54, when the Ziphites betrayed him. Verse 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. David had forgotten that. And then you look in chapter 56 when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David had developed promise amnesia. These are the very promises he had penned under the inspiration of the Spirit. Or when he fled from Saul in the cave, Psalm 57, verse 2, I cry out to the God Most High who fulfills his purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. 
For your steadfast love, verse 10, is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Or Psalm 59, when Saul sent men to watch his house, verse 9, O my strength, I will watch for you, for you are my God, you are my fortress. Verse 10, may God in his steadfast love meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. All of these promises revealed to David in the wilderness. But then he developed promise amnesia. And here David is in 1 Samuel 27. We're going to see the consequences of this next week. As he is being tormented and beaten down by giant despair. But there's going to come a day when doubt and despair are completely destroyed by God. In fact, as you read on in Pilgrim's Progress, Doubting Castle is going to be torn down. And Giant Despair will be beheaded. Isn't that hopeful? But in the meantime, we have to contend with him. Between the already of the all-sufficient salvation in Christ and the not yet of the consummation of things, new creation. We will have to contend with giant despair. But it's a battle fought from the posture of victory. Because God has been true to his promise, yes, to David, but to the one greater than David, to enthrone his Davidic king even to the point of raising him from the dead. And the irony of that whole narrative is that the greatest reason for despair in the history of the world was the cross and the burial of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest reason for despair in the history of the world because on that day, the only good man in the history of the world had tragedy happen to him. But God turned that greatest cause for despair into the greatest reason for celebration by raising him from the dead. And it was in that cross he crushed the head of giant despair. Because at the end of the day, all despair can be traced back to the reality of life in a fallen world that's under the dominion of sin and the curse of sin. And he took the curse for everyone who would trust in him, everyone who would believe in him. And in the resurrection, God reversed the curse. And that is the hope for every pilgrim on the way to the celestial city. And one of the glorious means that we, that we remember, that we remember these promises, that we remember what God has done in his faithfulness to the promises is, is the table. I think it's beautifully providential that we 
come to the table on a day that we consider the struggle we have with giant despair. For those of you that are visiting with us, we always encourage you to partake of the table with us upon a couple of conditions that you have bowed the knee to Jesus. You've repented of your sins. You've trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation. Someone would ask you, why should God, a holy God, a righteous God, allow you into his holy presence? You say, well, I don't deserve it. I am sinful to the core, and I deserve his judgment. But he's made a way. He's made provision in his substitute. His son Jesus, who fulfilled all the terms of the law for me, and then was crushed on the cross because I don't obey his law. And then God raised him so that I might have justification, forgiveness of sins. If you believe that, and you're a member in good standing, a baptized member in good standing of a, of a like-minded church, we, we would ask you to, to partake with us at this table. What we're going to do today as well, before we partake, we are going to corporately recite the Apostles' Creed. And so let's just bow our heads and ask God to examine our hearts and pray this, search me, O God, and try me, and see if there is any wicked way in me. And ask him to prepare your hearts for the table. And then we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed before we partake. Let's pray.